Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. And of course, so we followed very, very closely on Thursday. And then on a Friday, we listened to the hearings. We listened to South Africa presenting on a Thursday. At the, initially, I thought they did a reasonable job. I thought they put it together very well. Uh, but uh, I did note that they were quoting things that sounded like they came directly out of Hamas. Uh, items that we know were not substantiated. Some of them weren't even uh, weren't e- were, were false. And then on Friday, Israel went ahead and they rebutted the Thursday's uh, Thursday's evidence. I thought they did a very, very, very good job. They did it with dignity. They weren't as uh, emotional as I thought they might be, but let's hear from an expert how it went. Professor Angela Dubé, Professor at the Department of Public, Constitutional and International Law at the University of South Africa. Very good morning and thanks for taking the time to speak to us. How are you doing? Good morning and thank you for having me. I am well. Thank you. So uh, let's just get a sense of how, of how this played out over Thursday and Friday. Mm. All right, you, you will recall South Africa as the applicant began with its case on the first day, and obviously they needed to convince the courts that um, the matter coming before the court does fall within the jurisdiction of the court under the genetic correction, under the Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. So they, they, they lined up their arguments firstly on the issue of the dispute that they existed, because without a dispute, this court would not have jurisdiction. Um, then they went on. Well, Professor, if I can just ask you to, the, the, the line is kind of coming and going. So maybe if I can ask you just to speak a little slower, then if it does drop, then we'll be able to hear you more clearly. Okay, wonderful. So after, after they set out their case on the issue of uh, the dispute, they went on to deal with the issue of the acts in question, the acts which um, have, raised, have, have, have caused or given rise to the conflict. And then thereafter, they moved on to deal with um, the issue of interim measures themselves, the issue of plausibility of the rights um, in question. They, indeed, for this, they had to convince the court that over and above the act complaint of mm. there was a mental element, because in law, you don't just accuse any person without necessarily showing that their mind was intent on doing a particular thing. That is what, what, is what we call a genocidal intent. They went mm, mm. on and on with cases and um, references to conduct of governmental authorities that would support a claim of genocidal intent. And then on Thursday, on Friday, Israel came and they started with the dispute. They wanted to show to the court that the matter is, is not within the confines of the, of the genocide convention because there was no dispute. Then they moved on to try and show that even if there was a dispute, the convention does not apply right. because there was no genocidal intent. That was Israel's case. Right, right. And, and to support that, they tried to classify the matters and say, if you classify the, the actions complained of, they will not necessarily fall within the ambit of uh, genocide, but they will fall within the ambit of uh, the law of war as it, as it, as it happens within the context of uh, urban warfare in today's, um, you know, uh, happenings where we have war in the cities. Mm. So that's basically what we saw happen over those two days. 
So the and and uh, in terms of uh, Israel started with this back and forth about the sending a message and Durko not responding and saying that they didn't get it. That, but is what was all that about? Look, the, the, that, that argument was Israel's attempt to say to the court there is not dispute because if there's not dispute, then the court must shut this case down and not even continue. Right. Any further. Right. So Israel was saying, for there to have been a dispute, we needed to have engaged government to government at a higher level than the level at which we engaged. Mm. However, the, the law is not totally clear on what should happen before a dispute can be said to have been What South Africa did to push its argument on the dispute issue was to show that from as early as November, they had raised their issues within the context of a meeting of states, this being the meeting of BRICS, and also a meeting of uh, the United Nations General Assembly, mm-hmm. where they raised it, saying, we believe you have violated the, uh, the Genocide Convention. Um, and obviously Israel would dispute that. So I thought I said, from that date onwards, we were putting you on notice that we are disputing your version of events, and this is our version of events. Up until the 29th, when South Africa filed its application before the court, because the, for, for the court, that is when a dispute is supposed to be said to, to exist. So as of the 29th of December, a dispute had existed from November, as far as South Africa's um, submissions are concerned. But as far as Israel's submissions are concerned, a dispute did not exist because South Africa had not fully engaged them at the state-to-state level. In other words, using the diplomatic channels, using GERCO and other channels. And and the fact that South Africa seems to have got it wrong in terms of the flow of documentation, either it was... Uh, you know, it seems to be, uh, it, it seems to be a bit either sloppy where they didn't respond, did get it, did. But uh, either way, it, it did appear as though the th- th- that uh, either the legal team didn't know the full facts on the ground, or uh, were were misrepresenting it. From from my reading of the situation, it seems that the the South African team did not know of a response from Israel and not verbal that came afterwards. Mm, mm. Um, I think around the time of filing, uh, falling over to the beginning of January, mm, mm. There, there seems to have been some confusion there. Um, there seems uh, to have been the sentiment that there was no communication when in fact there was communication. I, 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 don't, I do not necessarily think it was a misrepresentation per se, but I think it was... Uh, <laughs> I would call it oversight. On, on, on okay, so, so so that was an oversight. Yeah. What about the the quoting of uh, a quoting in part, for example, of Netanyahu when he talks about Amalek, and uh, they, you know they they submitted not the entire quote. The Israeli defense team then shows the the quote in 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 greater detail, which changes the perspective. Uh, what it's it, how do you understand that? That specifically, I would say, we can uh, narrow it down to, you, you know, international litigation can be quite cumbersome and precarious in this sense that the person obviously litigating is usually not on the ground mm, in mm, Israel, in mm, Gaza. Mm. So there will be, um, you know, uh, some things which are lost in translation as the person gets the narrative. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For evidence, even when we go to, to the merits of this case later, there will be issues with the evidence because the the locus of the matter is, is, is in Israel, not in South Africa. Therefore, certain matters will necessarily be um, presented the way they were, whether they are uh, not fully uh, canvassed the way they're supposed to be, or, or or certain statements may be truncated because maybe that's the only available evidence that was provided. I do not know the inner working. No, no, sure. I, I'm just curious at your thoughts. I mean, if, if I have a dispute with somebody and I go to my lawyer and say, here's an extract from an email proving I'm right, most lawyers are going to say, thank you, Howard, that's great. Can you just give me the whole email just so I can, just so I can read the whole thing and not just a, a one paragraph of it? That's just what I was surprised at. So I would have thought that the legal team would have said, that's great, thank you for this quote from Netanyahu. Can you just give us the whole speech? Because it's obvious that there might be something else there that puts it in a different context. It, it came as a surprise to me that the team either didn't do that, ask for the entire quote, or, 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 or uh, uh, chose to just uh, present a, a small portion of it. Mm. Okay, well, while we're not that, and you're right, we, we, need, we need to note that. It's a, it's a fact that was presented in public court. It's notable. Um, what, what, what I don't want us to lose sight of mm. is the fact that there was just one element of the expressions coming from governmental officials mm. that was controverted successfully by Israel in court. My worry in this matter is that there was a lot of other assertions which mm. were brought as mm. 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 And when Israel stood up to, to, to push back on those, I did not see them question those specific Interesting. It doesn't matter whether the person is a prime minister or not. It doesn't matter whether he's the president or not. I mean, we've seen in, in the context of Rwanda with the Tutsi uh, genocide, mm. there's a fella that, that, that stood up and said, we must crush this cockroach. And he was incited genocide. Over a space of two years, people literally took these cockroaches, stayed mm. and crushing others, killing others. And he was recently uh, sentenced to... For genocide. So it's not necessarily the focus is not necessarily on Prime Minister per se, but the fact that the person uttering these utterances within the context of Israel, what authority do they have? May not be governmental authority. Um, It could be social influence. And if it is allowed, if such things are allowed, and the person does not hold such person to to account, it then invokes. The jurisdiction of the court in terms of the genocide convention. Right. So, so that, for me, that's the focus. Right, right. Uh, the 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 question around the question around all these steps that Israel has taken, and that was shown. very very extensively how Israel has dropped leaflets, made phone calls sent text uh, for a month told people that they need to evacuate and and, uh, given them routes created different zones within Gaza to try and and assist them surely that would work very strongly in Israel's favour, that certainly doesn't uh, portray a country that's intent on killing another nation simply because of their race and religion? The, the communications that are dropped like that, um, 
are basically an obligation that Israel has in terms of the law of war, what we call humanitarian law, to limit um, civilian casualties, to, to limit unnecessary suffering during uh, in the theater of war. However, we need to be aware that yes, leaflets you can drop them, they're good, they're hard copy, they can reach people. But in the context of uh, urban warfare, how many people have access to Twitter? How many people have access to SMSs, to electricity, to charge their phones, to receive these types of messages? Because we're, we're dealing here, we were not dealing with an ordinary, uh, you know, pu- public violence coming out of a protest somewhere, you know, in, 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 in Right, but what else was Israel meant to do? I mean, they've, they've, they've made phone calls, SMSs, they actually spoke to people, they dropped leaflets. Uh, I, you know, what, what alternative did they actually have? My point is that, that yes, it's an obliga- yeah. it might be an obligation under international law, but the point is that they fulfilled yes. it and they did what they, they did an incredible amount to try and keep and remove, move civilians to safety whilst Hamas had embedded itself in hospitals, in schools, and, and I think Israel showed that mm. quite clearly where they, where they were and how embedded they have been within civil society, making it an incredibly difficult. It's not as though Israel could simply bomb military, uh, military targets. The military targets were absolutely part and are still part of um, God and civilian society. So surely under those circumstances, nobody's suggesting that it's okay for civilians to die. It's a terrible, terrible thing, uh, which is kind of why we don't start wars. But the, the reality is that, that Hamas, through its uh, strategy, had, has made it almost a, um, a, a, a given that, that an enormous amount of civilians will be harmed. And and it's I just find it strange that it's Hamas's actions on October the 7th, it's Hamas's uh, treatment of civilians in Gaza, the way they've built their military infrastructure, their, their, the fact that they didn't allow in many cases civilians to move, the fact that many rockets fell back within Gaza, uh, that, that given what they have done to the Gazan people, that it's Israel that's being tried or being asked to defend itself for genocide and not Hamas. I just find it so bizarre. Okay, let, let, let me unpack that. Hamas is not a state, Israel is a state. Mm-hmm. Hamas is not a party to the convention, Israel is. So the obligations lie primarily with the state of Israel. It has obligations to prevent and also to punish. In other words, where individuals, whether they are wearing the cap of Hamas or any other organization, where those individuals carry out an act of, you know, uh, which is a violation of international law, whether genocide or crimes against humanity. The state of Israel has the right and a duty to actually prosecute those as enemies of humankind. Secondly, any other state in the world has the right to prosecute those people as, as agents of humankind. So the fact that Hamas is not before the court is simply because the legal system cannot bring Hamas before the ICJ. It's a state-to-state dispute resolution mechanism, which is why it's South Africa versus Israel. But what I don't want us to to, to lose sight of is is the fact that even though Hamas has been accused of placing, um, of of conducting perfidy, where you 
perhaps go into an ambulance so that your, 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 your enemy may think you're, you're a health worker and then suddenly you shoot him, you know, taking over schools, taking over that and that. We, we need to be aware of the theater of war being the urban space and the complexities of fighting wars in the urban space. So that when it comes to issues of targeting, issues of limiting collateral damage, because collateral damage will be there. There will be civilians who will die. There are acceptable thresholds, there are unacceptable thresholds. But the problem in the current matter is that the, the losses on the civilian side that are occurring are occurring in the context of statements which have been uttered by people of influence, people of authority within the government. So when one then make, make the correlation between the, the statements uttered and the acts carried out and the losses, it then leads to the conclusion that there is an intention to wipe out. Because when the government... So, 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 so very simply, could Israel bring a case against South Africa for the high crime rate and uh, on the utterances of Julius Malema and Jacob Zuma? Israel can do that if it amounts to a matter over which the ICJ can have jurisdiction. Yeah, well, South Africa is a signatory, and so is Israel. So could Israel bring a case against South Africa for genocide because uh, uh, Julius Malema has has uh, very, very publicly said, kill the Boer. Uh, Jacob Zuma has spoken about uh, bring me my machine gun or whatever that is. And we're seeing an, an incredibly high uh, murder rate, higher than anywhere else pretty much in the world. Can Israel bring a case, in your view, of, uh, of genocide against the South African government. It would definitely be within their right to do so. However, the challenge there would be the amount of jurisprudence that South Africa has already on that issue, on the issue of singing these destructive songs and the fact that there is no correlation between the singing of the song and the killing of a, a white farmer somewhere in the farm. And that some of those um, white killings in, in farms that have been attributed to Julius Malema and the song were actually Killings by intimate partners of the people involved. Yeah, but you could certainly argue that they've created a climate. You could certainly argue that they've created a climate of uh, of that has okayed um, and and uh, uh, given the go ahead to to crime. My point is that, uh, and and I also just find it quite bizarre that Hamas can't be there because they're not a signatory; they're a terror organisation. So the message here is the best way forward is to do what Iran is doing, which is sponsor global terrorism. The Houthis, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, who cannot be held accountable and uh, pretty much can get away with with whatever they choose because they can't be taken before the international criminal court. Uh, haven't we set up a an environment, uh, given all of these factors, that the country that is attacked such as uh, Israel, but forget Israel, in, in, in any other situation, uh, by a terror organization is going to have to unfortunately deal with them with one hand tied behind their back because they will be held accountable for pretty much anything and any utterance of, of a government minister might have been said in anger, might have been said completely inappropriately. And I think some of Israel's ministers have said stupid and appalling, unacceptable things. I'm not arguing that at all. But that doesn't mean that it translates to action. If you're going to, to um, attribute the civilian deaths to that and not 
look at the facts on the ground, then uh, my, my concern is that we're heading into a very, very dangerous, a very dangerous place. I do need to leave it there because we are running out of time. We have run out of time. In fact, uh, Professor uh, Angelo Dubé, thank you for your thoughts. I agree with some, I disagree with others, but that's how dialogue works. He's a professor at the Department of Public Constitutional and International Law at the University of South Africa.